This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 17th of June 2023. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up on today's programme, we have a leaf through the morning's papers from across the world with Simon Brook. Plus, the man who's helped a thousand North Koreans to freedom. To cross the North Korea-China border now is to risk your life. But when my wife escaped 23 years ago, at the time you could pay a border guard $5 and they'd help you cross. Now, even if you pay $50,000 to the border guard, it's still very hard. And an exploration of the world of flavour with author Nikki Segnet. It wasn't just, oh, this is nice with this. It was why. Why are strawberries good with balsamic vinegar? Why is black pepper recommended for some fruits? All that coming up here on Monocle on Saturday. First, here's the news. Russian leader Vladimir Putin says tactical nuclear warheads have already been delivered to close ally Belarus. Speaking at the Economic Forum in St. Petersburg, Putin stressed he saw no need for Russia to resort to nuclear weapons for now. The move, Moscow's first deployment of such warheads outside Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union, was intended as a warning to the West about arming and supporting Ukraine, the Russian leader said. Chinese President Xi Jinping met with Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, calling him an old friend, and said he hoped they could cooperate in a way that would benefit both China and the United States. It was Xi's first meeting with a foreign entrepreneur in years. Gates' visit comes ahead of a long-delayed trip to China by US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who will arrive in Beijing tomorrow. His trip is aimed at stabilising relations between the world's two largest economies and strategic rivals. And militants linked to Islamic State killed 25 people in a terrorist attack on a school in western Uganda near the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's according to Ugandan police today. Members of the Allied Democratic Forces, the ADF, a Ugandan group based in eastern Congo that's pledged alliance to Islamic State, attacked Lubarira Secondary School in Pondwe, burning a dormitory and looting food. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. It is three minutes past nine here in London and I'm joined in our Midori House studio by Simon Brook, freelance journalist and a communications consultant. We're going to have a look through the papers. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning. Uh, now, of course, it's just been full of authoritarian men with secrets who've been lying. Uh, <laughs> that's really the, 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 the boils down the papers worldwide. Sums it up very nicely. Absolutely. <laughs> On both sides of the Atlantic, exactly. So um, two populist leaders in trouble with the authorities as you say, here in the UK, we've finally seen the report by the House of Commons, House of Commons Privileges Committee into Boris Johnson and Partygate, and it's even more damning than some people were predicting. Uh, across the, the pond, slightly more seriously, perhaps, of course, Donald Trump is facing prosecution um, following the discovery of these pl- classified papers in his home, or more precisely, in his 
in his bathroom in his ballroom. I don't know about you, Georgina. I never leave these kind of papers in my ballroom at all. I'm always making sure. <laughs> no, no, no. But one place that's got to be clear is the ballroom. <laughs> Absolutely, for your sequin dresses and stuff. Um, and I suppose you could even say there's a third, because uh, we like threes, don't we, in, in the media. Three examples here, which would be Nicola Sturgeon, the former uh, Scottish First Minister, arrested last weekend. But anyway, the, the focus has been very much on Trump and Johnson. Um, and in fact, there's another parallel here because the Times is just reporting this morning uh, that uh, 25 notebooks from Boris Johnson's time in office are being withheld from him by the uh, government after a review by the security services found pages of highly sensitive material. Um, so an interesting comparison there between, between Johnson and Trump. I think another comparison I find quite interesting is the way that both Trump and Johnson have really gone after the people who let's face it, have quite rightly um, put them under the spotlight. Um, Trump, of course, this week has described this as the most evil and heinous abuse of power in the history of our country. Uh, it's a per political persecution like something straight out of a fascist or communist nation. This day will go down in infamy. Um, Boris Johnson, I think, quite interesting, always the, the, the demeanour of the bonhomie has sort of slipped away as he's described the Privileged Committee, Privileges Committee as deranged um, and said that uh, this is a final knife thrust in a protracted political assassination it's beneath contempt so um yeah that sort of jolly the, the wordsmith is still there but it certainly isn't warm and uh, and quite uh, as uh, as witty as you'd normally see from boris johnson um, <clears throat> i think another interesting comparison that the media on both sides of the atlantic are making uh today in the last few days is the what really counts in many ways in political terms is the polling what effect do these two serious events have on the electorate and in particular um, the parties that uh, Johnson and Trump uh, are from, you know, uh, who will be looking for elections coming uh, next year. Um, so the New York Times has an interesting piece looking at the fact that uh, considerably more Republicans regard the charges against Donald Trump as serious than Democrats or independents who don't think they're serious, uh, if that makes sense. So the uh, and, and the paper says that the indictment divides Republicans more than it divides Democrats. And there's a quote in the New York Times from Jonathan Bernstein, who's a political scientist uh, writing for Bloomberg opinion, who says Trump splits the party, uh, not evenly, but uh, sorry, not evenly, but it's an 80-20 split. And that's a real split. Uh, polling here recently in the UK on Johnson has shown that more than twice as many voters generally blame him uh, as blame Rishi Sunak, uh, the, the Prime Minister, Conservative Party leader, for the split in the Conservative Party, and 52% that say that Johnson is primarily responsible for Tory disunity. So, um, yeah, looking at it from a political, through a political lens, which many in these part, in the parties will be doing, it does seem that Trump and Johnson are not doing their own parties any good. No, absolutely not. And of course, with Johnson's resignation, another two said they would go, only one has. But that means uh, by-elections, and those are by-elections that the Tory party can ill afford right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, um, <clears throat> just talking to somebody who's uh, so close to number 10, so there's a feeling... Uh, of relief in a way that they were looking to see how many Tory MPs followed Johnson. You know, if we were talking about 100, it would be really serious. If we were talking about 30 or 40, that's a real headache, a bit of a problem. The fact that actually does seem to be a very small handful of the usual suspects, I think, has, has allowed the Tory party leadership and Rishi Sunak to breathe 
a sigh of relief. Um, they will, I think, want to get these uh, two by-elections now because Nadine Doris, who um, was originally threatening to leave, has decided mm, perhaps I'll stay after all. Um, they will want to get these by-elections out of the way as soon as possible um, just to get, uh, you know, to, to grasp the nettle if you want. But yeah, it, the problem, the focus, it, they're bound to lose them, I'm sure. But the problem is it will put extra pressure on the Tories and uh, questions about their ability to win the big one, uh, the general election, when mm. that comes. Now, you called Boris Johnson a wordsmith, and of course he started as a journalist, fired from two papers for lying in both instances. Uh, the Daily Mail, however, has given him a job. They announced that they had this star new columnist who was just going to be absolutely wonderful, uh, and indeed he started writing for the Mail. Now, there are two, well, many, many sides to this, but one of them is that he broke the rules yet again by doing this. Exactly. So he only told um, the authorities in Parliament who look at what MPs can and cannot do or ministers can and cannot do when they leave office. He only told them 30 minutes before the announcement was made public that he was to join the Daily Mail, Daily Mail as a columnist. So again, I think uh, just shows his, many people would say, his, shows his contempt for Parliament. Also, I think it's probably a deliberate uh, action by him to stick two fingers up at the authorities just to make it absolutely clear. Um, interesting that, I mean, the Daily Mail has been one of the the, the Daily Telegraph quite supportive. The Daily Mail's very supportive of Boris Johnson. But if you ever read the Daily Mail, uh, you can see pieces, opinion pieces by its columnists, people like Andrew Pierce, very supportive, as I say, of Boris Johnson. But then if you look at the comments, which I always think are quite interesting, I reckon it's two to one, three to one against Boris Johnson. So um, certainly a lot of male readers aren't very happy about this. It's interesting that the first column that Johnson has produced is not about politics or the Privileges Committee it's about how to lose weight so again I think Boris Johnson just playing with the Tory leadership you know just waiting I'll slip the knife in here but I think it does show as well that he's probably accepting the fact that his parliamentary if not his political his parliamentary career is over and I think again uh, the, the Tory leadership will be breathing a sigh of relief over that. I mean his first column was slightly hilarious that the wonder drug I hope would stop my 11.30pm fridge raids for cheddar and chorizo didn't work for me but I still believe it could change the lives of millions. Thank you former Prime Minister for your words of wisdom. Serious issues here good to see you <laughs> taking these seriously. And of course Nadine Dorries uh, who is the uh, um, one of his staunchest supporters also also has a column in the newspaper. She does. She's also appeared on Talk TV uh, just recently talking about the Privileges Committee. I love the fact, obviously I haven't had a chance to read it, she said, but urged other people to do it as well. <laughs> well, if you're going on TV to talk about it, don't you think you should have read it at least, perhaps? Quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, I mean, just th this is the story that we'll keep on giving, particularly because we can read about it every week. In Absolutely, exactly. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for that. We'll come back to you a little bit later in the show, Simon. Now, the soul-based pastor Seon uh, Jun Kim has helped over a thousand North Koreans flee the regime since 2000, helping them navigate the treacherous physical and mental journey to freedom. Pastor Kim's work has even inspired an award-winning documentary called Beyond Utopia, which took home the Sundance Film Festival Audience Award earlier this year. Well, Monocle's Isabella Jewell had the opportunity to speak to him this week when he was attending the Oslo Freedom Forum. She started by asking Pastor Kim how helping North Koreans escape the country became his life mission. 저는 북한 사역을 위해서 2000년 
In January 2000, I went to the border area between China and North Korea to spread the gospel. And when I was there, I saw a lot of dead bodies floating in the Tumen River, and I saw North Korean children begging. I was shocked. At the same time, I met a woman from North Korea who became my wife. Through her, I learned a lot about the suffering in North Korea. So all this put together meant I ended up devoting my life to the mission. How did she manage to do this? Did she also have the help of someone like you to cross the border? To cross the North Korea-China border now is to risk your life. But when my wife escaped 23 years ago, at the time you could pay a border guard $5 and they'd help you cross. Now everything is much more strict. Even if you pay $50,000 to the border guard, it's still very hard. The thing is, even if you pay the money or risk the border to get to China, that's not the end of the defector's journey, only the beginning. Because when you get captured in China, the government will send you back to North Korea. And and so I was going to ask you about the journey that these people that you help escape undergo, because you've helped around a thousand people since 2000, I believe, um, to escape North Korea, to come to South Korea. How exactly does that work? I know that you work on this kind of underground railroad, as it's called. Right now, it's so hard for a defector to complete their journey. The thing is, once they get to China, they need to travel all the way to Thailand. So they need to trek through the jungle to Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar or Vietnam. This is a 12,000 kilometer journey to freedom. It's an incredibly tough journey, but many of the defectors I helped escape have become missionaries, and they go back to help other North Koreans escape. Wow, because I can imagine it's a very traumatic experience, a terrifying experience, and you're also putting your freedom at risk by going back to help. Mm. In order to bring good work to the world, somebody has to make sacrifices. And that's how we build a better world. As Christians, we have to follow in Jesus' footsteps. It's a risk we don't fear. It's a sacrifice we make to bring good to the world. I saw a survey from February this year from the Korea Hana Foundation saying that many North Korean defectors, once they get to South Korea, um, face a lot of discrimination. And it's very hard to kind of reintegrate Firstly, because of language and accent barriers, but also negative perceptions in the population. And then I can imagine there's also the mental barrier of adapting from living under dictatorship to living in freedom. How, how does that work? What's that journey like for people who come to South Korea? As you said, those kinds of opinions can come out. It happens all around the world, no matter where you are. Those kinds of reactions can come out in places like the US and the UK too. Some Koreans living in the UK say it is hard, despite it being a great country. North and South Koreans have been separated for 70 years, so in my opinion, these tensions arise from a difference in culture. It's not discrimination. There are indeed a few cases of this, but we cannot say this is the experience of the majority. And what are the hardest things that defectors from North Korea find about settling into a democracy having left a dictatorship? Under the dictatorship, North Koreans just get their food given to them. Your job is given to you. The regime decides what your job is. It doesn't matter if you're interested in art or computers. You just have to take what you're given. 
But when you're in the free world, you have to choose what you like and decide what you want to do. The defectors find it really hard to think about what they like or want to do. That was Pastor Kim Seong-gung in conversation with Monocle's Isabella Jewell at the Oslo Freedom Forum this week with the voiceover from Tom Edwards there. This is Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and still with me in the studio is Simon Brook. We're having a look through the papers and Simon, uh, African leaders have headed off to Ukraine this week. Uh, Three African leaders, three dropped out through various circumstances, (laughs) including one having COVID. Um, They've turned up in Ukraine and uh, Vladimir Zelensky is not convinced. He suggests that that their peace plans are unrealistic. Uh, he, um, they, they had testy exchanges, this is according to the New York Times on Friday, on how to end the war with Russia, hours after Russian forces fired missiles at the capital. Uh, while the African heads of government were there, they had to take shelter. Uh, they spoke of hope and dialogue after talking to Zelensky, but he ruled out peace talks until Moscow withdraws its troops from occupied territory. Uh, and he called for Russian to be frozen out diplomatically. Now, of course, he's doing this because Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa wants Putin to visit in August and has been really very supportive of him. Uh, It's a very awkward situation. It is, absolutely. And it's very, I think it was interesting, quite a few people have been pointing out that it was sort of good that while the South African leaders were there, they were subject to this missile attack and and the uh, air raid sirens went off. And so they really understood the kind of jeopardy, the threat that the Ukrainians face. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the uh, interesting story as well in the Mail and Guardian here from South Africa about uh, a visit um, by the South African delegation to Poland, uh, presumably on their way to uh, Ukraine for as part of this, what's described as a peacekeeping mission, uh, even though... I think, uh, as Zelensky says, quite how you can have any kind of negotiation or peacekeeping with Russia, I don't know. And in fact, they are going to Russia. Mm. They're going to meet Vladimir Putin in St. Petersburg. He says, Zelensky says, I don't want to have any surprises because tomorrow you'll have conversations with the terrorist and then this terrorist will have proposals for you. Zelensky clearly not trusting any of this. Absolutely. And and this all comes back to the fact that um, Putin, well, the question about whether Vladimir Putin will visit uh South Africa in August uh, for the BRICS summit uh, of member states of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Um, The problem is that, of course, we have this international criminal court uh, warrant uh, of arrest against um, Putin for crimes uh, related to the war. And there are questions about whether um, if he does set foot in South Africa, the South African authorities should arrest him. And they've been sort of dodging uh, this question. Um, The US has put extra pressure on South Africa and uh, made it absolutely clear that they expect South Africa to to take a more robust line against uh, Russia in this situation. But, um, yeah, questions about whether uh, South Africa is willing to do that or whether their historically close connections, which go back to the Soviet Union time, don't they, of course, uh, the, the, these close connections will, uh, will be actually more significant, uh, more powerful than that pressure from the United States and the West generally. Now, of course, the South African delegation was somewhat depleted because uh, the whole press corps and the security corps, who were on a different plane, were delayed in Poland. This, I'm afraid, is quite a funny story. Well, I'm afraid it is. Well, I have to say, first of all, when I read it, I thought, 
thought, gosh, that's that's really bad. Poland causing trouble here themselves. And I wondered, is it some sort of racism, you know, against a, an African country? But then um, actually, when you sort of read a little bit more into this piece, um, you discover that there is a reason for that. And that's uh, that uh, the South African delegation did have some weapons with them, which they brought. And obviously, when the Polish authorities uh, looked at their um, their luggage or whatever, they saw these weapons and that the firearms. Uh, I want you guys to see this, how racist they are. When we started to open our packages, they wanted to confiscate our firearms, which is why we had to put them back, um, says one of the members of the uh, delegation. So I think the, the, the message here is if you want to go on a peacekeeping message, don't bring your own firearms. Well, absolutely. And particularly because the world is so unsure where South Africa stands in this, if they're happy to host Putin. Well, who's to say, you know, what, what <laughs> you wouldn't want to let him in with a gun. No, exactly. but, um, what would they use it for? But it, I mean, it was it sort of unfolded because there were lots mm. of journalists on mm. the plane too. And, and another reason for, for them not being allowed through was there were many, many more people on the plane than Poland had been told to expect. Uh, but a lot of the journalists on the plane were live tweeting this. And I believe some of them were kept on that plane for 13 hours. That does sound horrendous. I mean, it's absolutely it? yeah. awful for them. But yeah. the, some of the videos yeah. and the comments yeah. and um, I mean, a lot of people are saying, well, what do you expect? You can't turn up in a place and just expect to be waved through. Apparently, buses were not sent to the plane. So they all just got off and started walking across the tarmac, <laughs> which again was something and were threatened by the Poles who said, Oi, you know, you don't mm. want to break our rules. You're in our country. It now. does. I mean, it, it does seem bizarre, doesn't it? Because normally these uh, delegations, when I've, as a journalist, when I've been on a trip like this or when I've interviewed the people who organise them, they are absolutely organised to with military precision we know you know everybody they ask you so many questions about who you are who you're reporting from they know exactly how many obviously how many reporters how many staff members they have uh, they know exactly what is going to happen you get a schedule of events and you're not allowed as you know uh, two minutes to yourself are you with interview opportunities and receptions and sightseeing and stuff so normally these things are um organized as i say with incredible efficiency i wonder whether to some extent here this is just so much has been thrown up in the air by this conflict and also um to what extent south africa sees this as an opportunity to sort of emphasize their position on the world stage by really bringing the whole shebang including the the weaponry as well yeah, absolutely so really a horrible experience though for those on 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 the plane especially um, it wasn't their fault i mean if you get a <laughs> if you get an invitation to to you know to to follow the government on a diplomatic trip you normally get uh, treated really well as I say it can be hard it is hard work yeah. but that is the the compensation some of them described it as being hellish uh, and of course there is a place called hell in Poland uh, and travellers will soon not be able to to go there uh, on the highway on the 666 bus it seems extraordinary that there had ever been a bus with the number of the beast on its way to a place called hell albeit only with one L that's the difference <laughs> yes exactly and hell does sound quite heavenly by the way Apparently, according to the uh, the I newspaper, it's a seaside resort found at the tip of a sandbar peninsula. It's lapped by the Baltic Sea, and visitors will find pine forests and secret beaches. So I have to say, uh, if I was a travel journalist, I would be pitching this idea, uh, you know, as, as a travel piece. Definitely. I think what's funny about this is the 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 bus operators just decided that it would be funny to uh, give the number 666. It's not like part of their scheduling or arrangements meant that it had to have this number. It, it, uh, it was just a bit of a joke. And but unfortunately, one that wasn't well received by Christian groups who've been campaigning for many years, apparently almost a decade, according to the I newspaper, to have it changed. So it's now the number 669.
near enough, isn't it, really? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> sort of, well, you, I think we should try and go to hell. I think so. Yeah, as I say, it does sound really idyllic and a, a, a wonderful travel opportunity if you're pitching a, a story. Uh, hell is heavenly, apparently. Um, now, of course, there is another place that apparently is heavenly. It's Slow Jamistan. That, Tell us about this. So Slow Jamistan, according to the Times, uh, which seems like, an, uh, to the untrained eye, seems like a plot of scrubland off uh, State Route 78 between the towns of Ocotillo Wells and Westmoreland in California, is now to become, or its leader, uh, the Sultan, uh, would like it to become an independent state. It's got a capital, which is Dublandia. So I don't know if you want to check out some flights there if you're looking for a hot... If you've had enough of hell and you fancy something different, you could go there. But... Uh, Randy R. Dub Williams is a DJ who bought this 11-acre plot for $19,000, which seems an incredibly good deal, I must say. Perhaps that's just a London resident uh, in me talking, uh, in the Southern California desert uh, in December 2021. And he announced that he was creating a micronation, um, which I think sounds quite idyllic, really, doesn't it, in, in many ways? It sounds great. And I love their rules. One of them is that, of course, it is a dictatorship and he's in charge. Yeah. Uh, another rule is that if you wear Crocs, they will take them off you and beat you over the head with them. I think that's very sensible. Let's move there, absolutely. <laughs> I love, when I first read the fact that he said that there would be no uh, arguments, I thought, uh, you can leave your arguments at the doorstep, no drama and bickering. I thought, how wonderful. And then the next sentence you read, it's a 100% dictatorship. And you think, yeah, perhaps, perhaps as journalists, we wouldn't be very uh, greatly welcome. But it's interesting, according to the Times, the idea of a micronation. There's a bit of a trend here, gaining traction around the world, apparently, um, that they've been declared in Australia. This is the Principality of Hutt River, the Gay and Lesbian Kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands, and the Empire of Atlantium in New South Wales. So there's definitely a move there. And I think, given what we were talking about a bit earlier about the leadership, political leadership in the US and the UK, perhaps people are getting so fed up with our political leaders, they think, damn it, let's just do it ourselves, shall we? Absolutely, let's find somewhere else and move there. (laughs) Simon, thank you very much indeed. That's Simon Brooke. And finally on today's programme, Emma Nelson explores the weirdest and most wonderful flavour combinations and why they work with author Nikki Segnett. That Tomato and basil, chicory and blue cheese, lime and chilli. They feel good. They taste right. They just work. Why is that? In a kitchen in North London, new combinations are being cooked up. Nikki Segnet is standing in front of me, holding a piece of chicory. What does she plan to do with it? I'm going to braise it in orange juice. So what's going to happen to the chicory is it's going to go from being that bitter, rather kind of, I, I always think of it tasting a little bit like I imagine electricity to taste. It's kind of, it's got a slight bleak flavour when it's raw, which I like. It's great with blue cheese and walnuts, isn't it? Kind of that bitterness tends to be offset by those ingredients, salty kind of fattiness. But here with orange juice, cooked, it's going to transform. You're going to lose some of the bitterness. It's going to become much sweeter. The flavour combinations we reach for almost automatically may be enough for some. 
but not for Nikki. Twelve years ago, she saw a cookery programme where blueberries and sweet potatoes were served up together, and it got her thinking. I'm going to go and find a book that teaches me how to pair ingredients. And I had loads of food books, and I was really interested in kind of recipe books and in all sorts of kind of food books. And I'd never seen this book about flavour pairings before, so I don't know if I really thought I was going to find it. I didn't find it. I went online to see whether I could find, you know, maybe something had been written years ago or maybe something in the States, but there was absolutely nothing. In fact, I couldn't even find any books really about flavour. So I joked to my husband, oh, well, I, you know, haha, I'm going to write it myself. And then promptly, you know, had a glass of wine and forgot about it. And then a week later, I would say, I was sitting in my office in Great Portland Street on a hot day with the window open and the Flavour Thesaurus title just popped into my head like someone posted it in a post box. The Flavour Thesaurus was the first book to examine pairing food combinations by flavour. It wasn't just, oh, this is nice with this. It was why. Why are strawberries good with balsamic vinegar? Why is black pepper recommended for some fruits? So I thought, but I would collect these reasons and compile them into the book and, you know, add some other stuff of my own. And it turned out that I, I didn't find one. I did not find one explanation or even an attempt at an explanation of why one thing worked with another. So in the end, I had to compile it myself. I had to really go back to basics, primary research, and find out about flavour, start reading flavour chemistry books, which uh, was a bit of a challenge with my chemistry background being as poor as it is. But, you know, horticulture, agriculture, anthropological books, you know, really like getting down to the nitty-gritty. Nikki offered a harbour for weary cooks, feeling down and adrift and running out of ideas. She took 99 popular ingredients and suggested flavour matchings for each one, ranging from the classic to the bizarre. She called it a chemistry of flavours. If you take a basil leaf and you take a bite of it and you can taste in that basil leaf very strong flavour of clove and sometimes it's so pronounced that the leaf will numb your mouth in the way that biting a clove will. Well, that's kind of important because it shows you there's a really big crossover of flavour. The, the basil leaf that you think of as being herb and you might think of tasting grassy and maybe you taste a little bit of aniseed in it actually has a really strong spicy note sometimes they taste a bit more like cinnamon and what's interesting about that is it starts to teach us a little bit about the flavor composition of an ingredient and then suggest ways of using it in new ways and maybe explain historical ways that it has been used the book was a worldwide hit, translated into 14 languages. It took up home on the shelves of houses and apartments and of baristas, mixologists and chefs, and her readers begged her for more. Lentil fans or leek aficionados would collar her to complain that she hadn't included their favourite ingredient. So the solution has been a new, a second book, The Flavour Thesaurus, New Flavours. Using plant-based foods as a starting point and bringing us fresh combinations, such as the orange and chicory getting gooey in the pan and knocking us sideways by the flavour. How do you use it in the kitchen? 
Well, like I say, it kind of depends. Sometimes you've just got something that you want to use up. You open your salad crisper to spare at all the half packets of things that you've bought, or you're looking on your counter at these wonderful things that you bought at the farmer's market because you were just you fell in love with them in a kind of instant. So, as I say, you can just look up the back and you can see what the different flavor pairings are. And maybe you know you're quite a confident cook. Uh, quite a lot of the readers will be people that kind of have some kind of skill in the kitchen go off and do you know decide i'm going to make a soup with them i'm going to put them in a pasta i'm going to put them in a bowl together but if you want to know more if you're kind of perhaps either looking for a bit more inspiration or you're looking to understand a bit more about what's behind that pairing then you know you can go to the front and you know it might tell you how different cultures pair that ingredient or those two ingredients it might tell you something about how they historically were paired it might give you a cocktail Uh, it's just a whole load of different things it's really I don't think it's necessarily a book that's you know if you're just looking for an answer if you're just looking for a recipe Google can do that this is more about letting your imagination kind of run or come up with something that because only you know what you like really and what was Nikki's most surprising discovery I think avocado and honey i used to have a brazilian friend who'd say that she just couldn't understand why we'd only ever eat avocados made into guacamole or into like savory dishes and why didn't we you know why weren't we eating them like she did in brazil which was with sugar sprinkled on them so eventually i got around to trying it with a very light honey with not uh, like an orange flower honey so it's a honey that doesn't have a a lot of it's you know it's quite sweet it's got little you know it's got sort of delicate floral flavors but it's not it's not very pungent like a lot of honeys can be and i i I just instantly thought this is like going back to a house that you used to live in it feels very familiar and yet kind of completely strange at the same time because you know someone else has moved in and they've changed everything it was just all the flavors of avocado that i knew you know the ones we don't normally cover up with garlic, cumin, you know, or like strong flavours. There it was, this grassiness and like slight aniseed flavour, but sweetened and and made very, you know, very beautiful. It suddenly made it so much more the fruit that it is. The Flavour Thesaurus New Flavours may not look like a cookery book or a science manual, but it shows that when it comes to our appetite for something tasty while learning something along the way, we're as hungry as ever. For Monocle Radio, I'm Emma Nelson. Thank you very much to Emma. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday for this week. Many thanks to our producer, Isabella Jewell, and to our studio engineer in London, that's Nora Hull. It's her last day with us on this show today. It's been a wonderful ride, Nora, for the last few years. We're so sorry to see you go. The programme will continue. We'll be back next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>